Hi, I'm Roger Langridge, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Keep listening. Read, read, read. You know, uh, I I describe my my path to space, my journey to space, as being uh, paved with books. I mean, it's so important to me that I put a book at the bottom. It's the foundation of my patch, um, and so it really opens up uh, worlds, new worlds, new opportunities. I think for kids, um, it gives you a better vocabulary. Uh, it it I, helps you identify your interests. Um, so that's really foundational. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast. Find us on Twitter, at the GBB Podcast. And right here in your ears right now, how are you doing this week, Jamie? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Justin? <laughs> I'm doing really, really good. And we have a really different episode, really. I don't like that word. We have a different episode this week uh, compared to our normal fare, our normal offerings. But I think it's really cool in... Yeah, I'm just really excited about it. Really, yeah, we're really, we're, <laughs> really, yeah, really, really. Um, we're straying a little bit from you know our typical pop culture geeky fair, um, but I think this is still sort of this. Obviously, we're we're throwing this episode out, and I think it still fits in our wheelhouse. I think our listeners are really gonna think that it's interesting. Um, all of the conversations that we've got um, for this episode. Um, it, it's sort of a mishmash and I guess we could call this sort of like our great outdoors exploration episode. Uh, we need Star Trek music. <laughs> we need something, something to sort of make that feel a little bit more yeah. substantial. Um, in a nutshell, I went, the, the, there's a new IMAX movie, um, called a beautiful planet. Um, it's one of the, you know, I'm sure if you've been to any sort of, uh, space museum or, or a museum that has an IMAX theater, there's always those space movies playing. Um, and they're usually pretty jaw-dropping with the footage. This is the new one. Uh, it focuses on um, looking back at Earth from the ISS. And it was filmed, um, I don't, geez, I should probably should have done my research. I don't know over how much of time it was filmed, but I know it was filmed by four astronauts over six or seven missions up to the ISS. Wow. Um, and I uh, was fortunate enough to attend a you know, quote-unquote red carpet premiere um, here at the National Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian. Um, and I got to talk to the director, Tony Myers, and a few of the astronauts. Three of the four astronauts who did the actual cinematography with the IMAX camera were there. Um, it was Commander Barry Wilmore, or Butch Wilmore, I guess he goes by, Commander Butch Wilmore, uh, Commander Terry Verts and uh, Dr. Chell Norwood, uh, Chell Lindgren, I'm sorry. Um, and what you're going to hear is I got three um, fairly brief but very cool um, chats with the director and two of the astronauts, um, Barry, Barry, uh, Butch Wilmore and Chell Lindgren. 
Um, and they're just, these guys are amazing. They're like, they're heroes, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. like literally, they're, they're not many guys you look at and you're like, like, he's a hero. Like, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, and so I got to talk to them. We got to see an advanced screening. The movie's now out now. So I, I think if you go to, you know, your science museum, you'll be able to see it. And I really do recommend it. It's a great movie. Um, but I got to see it before it premiered. And then there was a big, um, fancy brouhaha cocktail hour thing in the, in the air and space museum afterwards. Um, and I just want to tell a quick story because I thought it was, I say these guys are heroes. Um, I was, I, they were out sort of mingling with everybody. And I went up and my daughter, uh, Zoe, she's been on the show. Um, she had one question she wanted me to ask. And I didn't get a chance to ask them on the red carpet, but she's obsessed with this. You know, she's seen people talk the astronauts talk about in, in zero G how, they drink water, they can just like squirt the water and it turns into this globulous bubble and they just drink it out of the air. She thinks that's the coolest thing. <laughs> so she wanted me to ask a real live astronaut whether they really did this. And so I didn't, no offense to Zoe, I didn't want to waste my time on the red carpet asking that right. question. <laughs> um, so I just, I grabbed them at the, at the, uh, the party afterwards and I, you know, I, I had, I asked a question, I got them on video answering her and, uh, and after after he answered, he looked at me and he goes, how old is your daughter? I said, seven. And he just looked at me and he goes, oh, man, enjoy it. My daughter is 14. And he just kind of like made this look like it's all downhill <laughs> from there. And I was like, and I said this to him. And I was like, you walked in space. Like you have been to the space station. You have literally walked in space. They should idolize you. But they don't. But he's still just dumb dad, you know? <laughs> So it's it was so disheartening. It was like, wow, awesome to, to meet these astronauts and talk to them. But at the same time, like, oh, I could be as cool as you and my daughter is still going to think I'm a loser when she's 14. <laughs> I don't think there's any hope. There is no hope. That's what I'm saying. If there's no hope for him, there's right. zero hope for me. Oh, no, exactly. Oh, that's, that's an awesome story. Um, and also, you got to talk to, you're a big National Parks fan, first of all. I, I am. Well, here in the States, the yeah. national parks are celebrating their 100th anniversary this year. So they've sort of they've rolled out the red carpet for a lot with a lot of special events and, and um, anniversary things going on this year. Um, and I am a huge fan and supporter of the national parks here. Um, my kids have sort of have recently gotten obsessed with the junior ranger program that they do. Most parks have uh, what they call junior ranger. They give kids this book of activities and worksheets or whatever. They're all different at every park and they have to, you know, answer the questions or do the activities or whatever it is. And they go back, they get sworn in, they get a little badge with the park name on it. They think it's the coolest thing ever. And I love it because it gets the kids engaged with the park in a way that they might not otherwise. And I got to talk to uh, Ford Cochran, who is, uh, he works for the national, he works for national geographic, um, and specifically, he's the director of programming for National Geographic Expeditions. Um, and if you don't know, National Geographic Expeditions is the branch of National Geographic that um, sends out. I, you can go regular people can can apply and, and sign on and pay to go on these expeditions but they're you're going along with expert scholars or photographers or writers or scientists and they'll explain you know they'll give you a deeper appreciation and a deeper understanding of wherever it is that you're going so it's sort of like a 
it's sort of like a class, a National Geographic sponsored class in the wild, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, to another country. And you get to go with these experts studying mountain gorillas or, you know, That's studying cool. fjords in Norway or whatever it is that you're where you're going. You're going along with somebody who is one of the foremost authorities. Um, so he basically has one of the coolest jobs ever because he gets to decide where these trips go, who the experts are going to be. Um, and he is also a fanatic for the national parks. He's, he's an expert on the national park system, um, the national park service. And I got to talk to him just about a lot of stuff. We talked about national geographic. We talked about the national park service. Uh, we talked about a lot of specific parks, um, as if you're a fan of, you know, now that, especially since we're coming up on summer, if you're a fan of, you know, the National Park Service here in the States and, um, you know, exploring some of the bigger ones, the battlefields, the smaller historic sites, uh, if you're planning family trips, um, a lot of the books that we talk about and the places that we mention, uh, take notes because I was taking notes while I was talking to him. Um, and it's just a, you know, it's a fascinating conversation. So, you're right, Justin. It's a little bit different from what we usually mm-hmm. do this week, um, but I think that it's still uh, still geeky in its own way. Well, yeah, I don't. I think that people. I think the people that are into what we're into are, you know, the things we talk about. They're gonna like it because I'm. I haven't heard the interviews yet. I, I will admit it. I haven't heard them, but I can't wait <laughs> now that he's teased them. Yeah, I'm we probably should say these are all me. It's it's yeah. another all Jamie week. I'm yeah. so Jill, sorry, well, guys. You know, not everyone can hobnob with astronauts at the Air and Space <laughs> Museum. But you know, it's a hard it's job. It is. Somebody's co- got to do it. That cocktail hour must have been tough. <laughs> it, was, it was tough. Yeah, I bet. It was tough. You know, yeah. drinking the neck, literally touching rockets in the Air and Space Museum. Yeah, it was tough. No, I can see it. I don't know how you did it. Yeah. No. <laughs> All right. I took, I took one for the team that time. Yeah, exactly. You got next. Okay. Deal. Next time I'm in DC, I'll take the I'll take the event. All right. <laughs> All right. All right, guys. Here's the interview. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. That's a great name. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, I guess I want to know, what is it about the large format that you really just love so much that you keep working in that format? Well, I love it because I love the large format um, because it really immerses you in the imagery that you're in. So I love most of all from the very get-go of IMAX that it t- takes people to places you and me to places we couldn't normally go, uh, like space or to the bottom of the ocean, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I know uh, one of your previous films was Space Station 3D. So why return to the same subject with uh, ISS? Well, it's not really the same because we, for that film, we were capturing the building of the space station up to the airlock going on, but the cupola wasn't there. There were modules that weren't there. So now it's a great big finished house in space. Uh, but I wanted to draw the analogy between the finished station and the Earth because they're both closed systems that require life support for us. And uh, the Earth supplies it, but the difference between the two, I wanted to say in the film, was that Earth doesn't get resupply ships. Yeah. So. Um, as a director, how 
how anxious do you get when you just send the camera and the film away and you don't really know what's gonna what the footage is gonna look like until it comes back? Not anxious at all because the the, the four crews that we train that James Nyhouse and Marsha and I train they're such incredible learners. They're so smart. They absolutely brought a lot of passion to to the project and knew they would be really perfect directors yeah. and they were. And so when are they sending you to space? Sorry? When are they sending you up there? I think that ship has sailed. Oh, no! <laughs> I, I, have, I have dreams in zero-G, though. Okay. Yeah, so I'm well able to fly around in my imagination. So. Have you thought about your next film yet? No, I'm going to be, a, I'm just going to pursue grandmotherhood. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Pleasure talking. Hi, I'm Sean Linger. Nice, nice to meet you. Um, I guess one of my, the, becoming an astronaut is a really long road, and I think what a lot of people don't realize is that you know you could get selected, and it could be years and years before you actually sure. go to space, if at all. Would you say that the road has been worth it, though? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a dream come true for me. Uh, you know, it's a it's a long haul, but. It's also not an individual, I mean, I don't think any of us would claim this as an individual achievement. I mean, as you, uh, you know, are on this journey, you have people walking alongside you, pouring into you, investing in you. So teachers, mentors, um, coaches that are, you know, are all a part of that journey. And so it's really getting to do this, getting to find space is a reflection on, on all of those people that have been a part of that, uh, that journey. About how much time did you actually have with the cameras? I mean, I know you had a lot of other things to do up there. Lot, lots of time. Yeah, I mean, probably in the uh, the tens, if not hundreds of hours, just you know, with the inside, the camera on the inside, shooting uh, internal footage, and then um, setting the cameras up for external shots as well. Was there anything that you like looked out the window and you said, "Oh my God, that's amazing!" But you were like in the middle of a project or something that you could, just couldn't get to it. Uh, Aurora. Well, I mean, there are several times where. You, ha you almost have to fight the urge to grab the camera yeah. so that you can really experience it. You know, I, every time we see something, we want to share it. You want to, to share it with your friends, your family, with people on the ground. But every once in a while, you have to remind yourself just to, just to put the camera aside and enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. Yeah. What message do you hope that people will take away from the film? Well, you know, I think it's uh, something that's been reflected on films before. It's, we've talked about it before, but, you know, we live on uh, a big, blue, beautiful spaceship, the planet Earth. Um, we spend a lot of time taking care of the ISS when we're up there, um, and we should be doing the same here on Earth. We should be taking care of this spaceship as well. Um, and do you have advice for kids who, you know, dream of becoming an astronaut and don't really know what to do? Uh, well, you know, my first and foremost for, for any kid is to read. Read, read, read. You know, uh, I I describe my my path to space, my journey to space, as being uh, paved with books. I mean, it's so important to me that I put a book at the bottom. It's the foundation of my patch, um, and so it really opens up uh, worlds, new worlds, new opportunities. I think for kids, um, gives you a better vocabulary. Uh, it it I, helps you identify your interests. Um, so that's really foundational. And then really to you know, if you're interested in being a part of the human spaceflight program, interested in being an astronaut or a scientist, you know, the STEM uh, disciplines, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, that's the language of spaceflight. And so um, kids need to be fluent in that. But if, if that is their passion, if that's where they have talent, then that, that's a domain where uh, we're looking for astronauts. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
How are you? Hi. Good, how are you doing? I was curious how much experience you had with photography or cinematography before <laughs> training for this. I was, the, I'm the novice. I had very little insight into cameras. So I was a good test subject for James, James Nyhouse, his training ability. And uh, he taught me well. I was the first one to get up there with the cameras. And so I put them all together and got all of it started. And uh, my learning curve was fairly steep. We made a couple of, you know, I wouldn't call them mistakes, but just learning things. And uh, then we were off and running. It's, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was yeah. fabulous. Yeah. What, um, what would you say uh, was the biggest surprise you saw? I mean, looking back at Earth and having that perspective before you went up and then to now, like, what, what was the biggest surprise that you just didn't expect? You know, that's a good question. Surprise. I don't know about surprise, but appreciation maybe for for what you know being in that place and be able to have those views and the opportunity i mean there's no way you can match exactly what you see with your own eye but on an imax screen you can get close and then it's probably as close as you can get and be able to share that and be a part of the ones that taking the vision like you know, going over the bahamas at night and seeing the colors in the water with a full moon and you see it in the movie it's just amazing and be able to share that just just a great great opportunity um, how could you describe a spacewalk to somebody who's never been there or will never experience zero-g? Great responsibility. There's thousands of people that have done an immense amount of work. I mean, with the engineering, the preparation, the training, you know, the runs in our pool where we simulate and try to try to do, you know, training runs. I mean, hours and hours of work, but it comes up to like the top of a pyramid, and it's you. You got to get it done, and you got to get all the tools and everything set up and ready to go and get outside and do the work. And so there's a great responsibility, and uh, you are you're, you're in a one-person space vehicle. I mean, that's what it is. It's self-contained. It's a one-person space vehicle shaped like a person. And uh, you know that, and you're in the vacuum of space. And I've said many times, you know, astronauts today don't get the notoriety that astronauts did decades ago, and that's fine. But if you want to get famous, mess something up on a spacewalk. <laughs> you're going to get famous. Not in a good really way. Really famous. Not in a good way. And that's kind of hovering in the back of your mind. Because it's not, you know, it's a rare thing that we do, and it's a... Uh, and it's a unique opportunity. It gets a lot of visibility. Yeah. So uh, doing those things, and like I said, the responsibility is great, and uh, and it's work. It's a lot of work because uh, physically the suit you got you know it's 4.3 psi, and you're you you know you got a physical aspects of moving the suit, and then there's the mental aspect. Every single thing you do is an active thought. You know we do passive thoughts. We walk. We don't think about it. But every movement you make is an active thought, and checking to make sure you get not getting tangled in your safety cable and all this other stuff. So it's it's very challenging, but very rewarding. Very rewarding. Sure. Are you hopeful for the future of space travel and exploration? Of course, I'm certainly hopeful. We've got the commercial crew program coming online here in a couple of years. Uh, SLS, Space Launch System, that's the largest rocket ever designed and built. We're doing it right now. First test flight is in 2018, scheduled for November. And it's the capsule's going to go around the moon. That's the plan right now. And the flight after that, several three to five years later, with people. Again, leaving low Earth orbit and going to around the moon with with people. So, yeah, it's a fascinating time as we point towards the heavens and go out into into the, our solar system. So, yeah, it's an exciting time. Very exciting. Thank you so much. Ford, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. This is great. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Uh, so I know that you have a, a deep background in geology and with National Geographic um, working for the company, but can you talk a little bit about how you fell into this focus on national parks specifically? Sure. Well, I guess like a, a lot of people, I, I've loved America's national parks since I was a child. 
and uh, began to take a professional interest in them and an academic interest in them. When I was a graduate student, I did field work in geology on the Big Island of Hawaii and on Mount St. Helens. So I spent more than half a year tramping around uh, Mauna Loa, Mauna Kea, Kilauea, and you know the, so the volcanoes of the Big Island and some of the other Hawaiian islands. And, uh, and then spent time in Mount St. Helens, also spent time during my graduate work in the desert southwest. So I was near arches and canyon lands doing field work. And just the more time I spent in the parks, the more time I wanted to spend in the parks. Mm -hmm. uh, since coming to National Geographic, I've been involved in a number of projects over the years that really were focused on putting a spotlight on places that were worthy of preservation or that perhaps were already protected, needed more protection as parks. Uh, we, we collaborated with a number of partners to help to create the John Smith National Historic Water Trail, which is administered by the Park Service around the Chesapeake Bay in time for the Jamestown 400th anniversary uh, back shortly after the turn of the millennium. And also have worked closely with uh, the marine biologists, ecologists, conservationists on the creation of uh, national marine sanctuaries and other sorts of marine protected areas here in the U.S., in our territorial waters and around the world. And those are sort of the next phase in the uh, in the parks movement where protecting places in the sea, ecosystems in the sea that are uh, worthy of conservation in the way that the Grand Canyon, Yosemite and Yellowstone are on land. Right. Um, I love that you have an undergraduate degree in English literature because it gives hope to everyone like me with a liberal arts degree that they, they, there could still be this amazingly cool job in our future. Oh, there is an amazingly cool job in your present. Look at what you're doing right now. <laughs> well, I don't get paid for this, though. <laughs> the, uh, but uh, but yes, I'm so I'm so thrilled, in fact, that uh, that I pursued uh, English literature as a uh, as an undergraduate. I was fascinated with literature. I was fascinated with journalism. And in fact, I didn't take a geology course until my senior year of college. After a few years editing the school paper at William & Mary, where I was an undergrad, um, I, I finished up and my senior year, I was sort of retired yeah. and, uh, and I finally had time to take a lab class. Friends recommended geology. And kind of what thrilled me about that was that uh, when I discovered that geologists read landscapes, uh, the stories written in rocks, the way you'd read a story written in a book, you know, it's uh, it's like opening the pages of book. Rocks tell stories. And uh, and so I made a jump right over into uh, into geology. That's great. Um so the national parks have been called America's best idea. It's what Ken Burns used for his documentary series. And I'm assuming you're going to agree with that. But can you explain why to somebody who might not get it? Sure. The um, well, well, think about it first. It is an American idea. You know, Yellowstone National Park created in 1872 was the world's first national park. Now, it's it's not as if the people who created it necessarily thought, oh, the United States, you know, should be administering a park out here where Yellowstone is because the parks, the, the, something this important should be a national, recognized as a national treasure. It was that there was no state entity that could manage the parks. There already was a park that Abraham Lincoln had signed into existence. Congress had passed a law right in the middle of the Civil War uh, and Yosemite was was created by Lincoln's signature. Um, but But it wasn't then a national park, it was a state park in California. There was no state where Wyoming is now, where, where Yellowstone is now. And so if it was going to become a park, it would have to be administered by the country. It would have to be a national park. And uh, and so it was. But but one of the reasons that, you know, we should all be so grateful and so, you know, so proud that our country invented this idea is that, you know, when you look at the parks today, when you see what they are, these are treasures. You can go to, as, as Ken Burns does in, in his doc, his wonderful documentary series. You can go to a place like Niagara Falls 
and see what happens if you don't protect yeah. these extraordinary places, these wonderful landscapes and ecosystems and historical sites. Now, Niagara Falls is still magnificent and still well worth a visit, but the area all around the falls has been developed. So there are sky towers and there are hotels and overlooks and concessions like right there. And from any vista, when you're looking at the falls, that's what you're going to see. You're not going to just see this magnificent uh, feat of nature yeah. uh, in front of you. And so, so the parks preserve nature really as it is, as, as it, you know, as it has been for millennia and uh, give people the opportunity to experience these places. And as, as the population of our country and of the world continues to grow, and it will, these places are going to become increasingly precious uh, to our descendants because they'll be sanctuaries from the sort of the urban worlds and suburban worlds and busy worlds that we've created for ourselves and inhabit most of the time. Yeah. Well, that leads me to ask, I mean, what do you think the biggest challenge facing the national parks is today? Well, I mean, there are several, and, and one of them is just is managing numbers in places where lots and lots of people come. It's always been a tension inherent in the parks is is people needed access in order to be able to enjoy them, right? They were created, as the arch says at Yellowstone, as uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt said, for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. And the, um, you know, so people want to come and they want to have access. They want a place to stay. They want to be able to drive to uh, at least to get into close proximity to the wonderful features of a park. But the parks also exist to protect the wildlife they contain, the, the natural places that they contain. And over the history of the Park Service, sort of how that balance has been uh, managed has evolved. So some of the earliest parks, uh, you know, when Stephen Mather became the first director a century ago of the, of the U.S. National Park Service, he felt that access was a huge priority because he knew that if people didn't come from populous cities back east, out west, and visit the parks – that there wouldn't be a constituency to continue to protect them. And the parks are only as protected as every generation chooses to make them. Right. So, so the Park Service built roads and the Park Service built magnificent hotels in places like Yellowstone and Yosemite and so on. And in fact, the, uh, I say the Park Service, but uh, the, the you know, uh, hotels in, in Yellowstone were built by concessioners. Really, the railroads uh, played a big part in, uh, in creating those. Mather himself uh, wanted to create some of the beautiful hotels in, in the Yosemite. There had been a, a, a tent camp and a sort of rustic set of hotels in the, uh, in the park. But when, uh, when he took the reins, he, he saw to it that a hotel called the Awani, named for the tribe, the Awanichi, that inhabited the valley, that the Awani was built, that would be as glorious as anything that a uh, traveler could go and find in Europe. And the notion was that, you know, really well-heeled travelers would be lured out west and would stay there. And and it continues to be a tremendous draw. I'm a sucker for that draw myself. I got married last year, and uh, that's where my wife and I got married. It's on the uh, the lawn of the Iwani Hotel. Oh, very nice. Um, you mentioned, you know, that we've talked about that the national parks are this American idea. Um, in your opinion, and obviously generally speaking, how do you think, by and large, America's national parks and the national monuments and everything that's part of the system – how do they compare to those found in other countries? Well, I think you see all sorts of different kinds of like levels of access, levels of protection uh, in different national parks in different places. Of course, there, there are some countries in which national parks are parks almost in name only, mm -hmm. uh, where there is very little means to protect them, you know, very few resources. Uh, there are parks such as some of the parks protecting wildlife in, uh, in Africa where there are extraordinary challenges, where, where the rangers – who were working to protect wildlife from poachers where their lives are at risk. 
And uh, over the course of my career, I've you know sometimes gotten really distressing uh, you know news notes about uh, about about poachers taking the lives yeah. of people who 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 know that they're taking that risk, who are willing to put their lives at risk, both to protect the wildlife that they're protecting and also for the good of their country. Um, they they recognize that in the long term, these are the things that bring people to their country, pride and recognition, revenue uh, to their country are the uh, are the parks. So there's. Um, you know, uh, uh, all sorts of different uh, levels of, of protection. Funding is incredibly important, of course, to make sure that parks are protected. Here in this country, I think there's a, a fairly high regard, a very high regard for the parks and what they represent. Um, you don't see a lot of litter. For the most part, you don't see, you know, I'm, uh, the, you know, poaching is always a threat, but there isn't a lot of it that's happening in our parks. Um, there is a little bit of a lack of recognition that wildlife needs to be sort of given its space, mm -hmm. you know, and I know that um, often you'll read signs and get, you know, handed brochures as you go into parks saying, you know, please don't get too close, for instance, to the bison right. in, in Yellowstone or in the wintertime. I, I just had the privilege of visiting Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks this past winter. And um, it's a time when it's very hard for predators to find prey. And, and it's very hard for prey uh, to uh, to graze on grasses and the other things that they ordinarily graze on. So pretty lean times, they don't have a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. And so um, ecologists have told the Park Service, you know, do what you can to keep folks from basically starting the animals, making them, making them run any more than they have to, because eventually they can be sort of run to death just by people hopping out of their cars to take pictures. Um, in, I, I will also say one of the places that I go every year that I just love it, that the whole place could be a national park practically is Iceland. Mm -hmm. And I take high school students there every year, teach them, um, filmmaking, photography, and science. And Iceland has become a very popular destination. Now it's had some glorious national parks that a decade ago, when we would go, we would, we would have them virtually to ourselves. I mean, we'd go to Europe's largest waterfall and would be, you know, um, our, our little couple dozen students and, and a few trip leaders. We'd be the only ones who were there really? when we visited. Now Iceland has become so popular. I think Instagram has been the best marketing tool <laughs> ever made because every 10th or 12th landscape is, is a spectacular, you know, glorious yeah. Icelandic landscape. And so, uh, and it's not very hard to get there. It's not that far away. Yeah. So they're almost overrun with people coming in and they're building, as fast as they can, you know, they're they're building trails. They're putting up fences where there used to be fences to keep people from sort of walking over cliffs, yeah. and uh, restaurants and hotels and uh, and all the rest. So it's uh, you know that sort of popularity brings challenges. I mean, the good news is that properly managed, it also brings in lots and lots of you know not just enthusiastic um, you know fans and supporters, but but revenue yeah. that can then get channeled back into making the park accessible in a really sustainable way. Well, I mean, in this house, I have two kids. They're four and seven. Um, we are huge National Park Service fans. I, um, When I was a kid, I would go out with my family. We would do road trips and things, and we would always make it a point to hit some national parks in the way. And now with my family, it's, we've been known to drive a few hours out of the way just to get to, like, a battlefield or a historic site. Um, and when I was younger, I also got addicted to the passport stamps. Um, and we just took a road trip. Uh, with my kids last month and now they're addicted they had to have their own books and they every time they go they get their own stamps so i have to ask if you're a stamp collector uh yes we're, we're <laughs> stamp collectors and and i got my kids you know the fancy zip up kind you know yeah. with the full pages in and uh, all of that yeah and uh, and nothing feels worse than when you discover you've gone to a national park and you go looking for the book and you're like oh it's sitting back home you know yeah. we're gonna have to come again <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know? um but yeah the 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 stamp it's a it's a really fantastic program and of course what a great thing you know what what great experiences to collect mm -hmm. 
Oh, absolutely. And that's that's what it is. I mean, you're you're getting the stamps, but you're collecting the experiences, and mm-hmm. that's that's sort of how we push it as well. Um, but having little kids now, something that I'd never experienced before, and what we've only just discovered is the Junior Ranger program. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually just wrote about this, and we we really just started it on this recent road trip that we had, and I've very quickly become a huge advocate for the program. I think it's amazing, um, and what was astonishing to me is that every park basically creates their own program so it's it could be from park to park they could be drastically different what the kids have to do um so i i mean i I guess as the as a as big an advocate as you are for national parks in general do you think that the junior ranger program is the best way um to have young kids get more involved with the parks I think I mean, I think it's an absolutely fantastic way to have kids get get involved. And it's I mean, because not only are they learning about the parks and about conservation and about what they can do with personally sure. to help contribute to that while they're there um, and and lots of fun and exciting facts and having great adventures. They're also being exposed to these fantastic role models. You know, the Ranger Corps, the National Park Service Rangers are, are really some of the most not only knowledgeable, passionate about the parks that they uh that they're serving and uh and they're just wonderful people for our kids to be exposed to i mean i think about things my kids now are 16 and 14 and i've been taking them to national parks throughout their lives mm-hmm. but um uh, they they participated in the junior ranger program i was so proud when my uh my oldest son cole my first son was uh you know sort of getting his collecting his you know certificates and yeah. he was a he was a junior ranger at yellowstone and the um uh when i when i have them think about careers you know when i talk to them now about what they might want to do one day i think that's there's a really noble you know, profession. There are all sorts of ways to sort of um, support the parks. Uh, one of them is by learning more about them. One of them is by serving the park service in that, you know, as a, as a career. And uh, I, you know, I've, I've heard rangers who, you know, privately talk to me about some of their frustrations. It's a federal agency. You know, their boss is, is Congress and, and, and yeah. the president and whoever's administering the system. They have to contend with all that. And we know that that's not many you know, that's sometimes a rocky road. But where they are and what they're doing is, you know, it's the most wonderful places in the world. And so incredibly important. Um, they're, they're just surrounded by nature, beauty, history, uh, and uh, and sharing these marvelous experiences with people. And I, I don't think I've encountered one um, who wouldn't choose that path again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And just the remarkable people. I mean, just in talking to them in the brief, you know, times that we have to talk, it's it's clear that their passion is is so invested in this park you know and it may be a park that you know you as a visitor has never even heard of you just saw it on a map and decided to go check it out but they're so intimately aware of everything that happens in the park and they're just they could talk talk your ear off for hours about everything that they know about the park and i just think that's fantastic and and you and you mentioned the serendipity of going and finding parks you don't know about And I think that's, I mean, something that people should be aware of, your listeners should be aware of, is that, um, you know, there are 59 sort of the big, fully designated national parks. Congress passed a bill. The president signed it. They became national parks. But there are more than 400 different units of the Park Service, parks managed by the Park Service. It includes national seashores and lakeshores, historic trails, battlefield uh, monuments. It includes lots of national monuments. And uh, I just love I'm a big fan of the Antiquities Act. Let me yeah. tell you, um, uh, it's it's what Teddy Roosevelt used, for instance, to protect the Grand Canyon. The Antiquities Act allows whoever may be president to set aside a place in the country and say this is so important. 
that it should be protected. And uh, that can be undone by a future president, you know, who thinks otherwise. But it's rarely been undone. It's it's usually, uh, uh, you know, a, a conduit when Congress can't agree. And, and we see ourselves, we live in a time when Congress has a very hard time agreeing on almost anything. Um, well, Congress in Teddy Roosevelt's day, when he, he was president, couldn't even agree that the grandest canyon on the face of the earth, <laughs> the Grand Canyon, ought to be a national park. Yeah. And it was decades before, in fact, it was set aside as one. But Roosevelt said, okay, then I'll make it a national monument. He created a huge national monument, set that land aside, and ultimately became a national park. And many other national parks have started as national monuments. And, and I think every president, especially near the end of their, their terms, you know, when they, when they recognize they want to leave a legacy, they want to be remembered for having accomplished something for the ages um, that's, that, that for the most part people will agree is good. Uh, they look at that list of monuments and they elevate a few yeah. to national park status. Pinnacles in California is our most recent. But, but all these, these monuments, as well as the, uh, the national parks, these historical sites and so on, they're, they're, tremendous. And I, I just love doing the same thing when I when I travel almost anywhere, whether it's for, you know, pleasure on vacation with my family or by myself with with uh, for work. Um, I'll usually try and tack on a day or two mm -hmm. and see if there's someplace nearby that's that's part of the park service and go and explore it. And some of the, the most rewarding places that I've been, you know, I've found in that way. Uh, you know, you, you go out to, um, Grand Canyon and then Bryce Canyon and Zion, you know, national, yeah. national parks and, and very close by is a place called Cedar Breaks. I hadn't, I didn't know much about it the first time I went 20 or 25 years ago. Um, but I was in the neighborhood and I checked it out. Well, it's in the same rock formation, the Clarion formation that Bryce Canyon is with all its spectacular hoodoos. It's at even higher elevation than Bryce. And what happens is the freezing and thawing that happens hundreds of times a year uh, as temperature changes, hovers right around the freezing point, causes clays in the rock to, you know, and moisture in the clays to expand and contract. And they weather into these fantastic towers, this this beautiful and bizarre sort of a sort of a landscape. Cedar Breaks is just gorgeous. Yeah. And last time I visited a few summers ago, the folks there said, we think we might become a national park. <laughs> we think we think. But uh, whether they do or they don't, um, it's it's one of the great treasures of our nation. And, and if you ever get a chance to visit, you really should. Yeah, that's it's interesting because I think when most people think of the National Park Service, they just think of the big national parks. They don't quite realize what else there is. And I, I know whenever I'm out west, I, I'm shocked. Just exactly what you just said. Some of the national monuments are just as breathtaking as the national parks. They just don't have that label yet. Um, but yeah, so that's what you know, we do the same thing wherever we go. I check the map and make sure we we hit someplace that's on the way that might be part of the system. Mm -hmm. It's um, one of the things you asked me how I got so involved with the national parks and, yeah. you know, especially in recent years, as I've looked back over my career, I've worked almost 25 years for National Geographic. And I'm I feel so privileged to be here because I love what the organization both stands for and sort of is like what it does, um, you know, sort of building, uh, you know, cultural understanding and inspiring and exciting people about, um, you know, all the wonders of our world, natural and cultural. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that to me, the, the accomplishments I'm most proud of are those that surround the, the creation or the expansion or ongoing support of national parks in this country and, and other countries internationally and these marine monuments. Yeah. Um, but I had this a year ago, um, was invited to create a course on the national parks, on the geology of the parks for um, National Geographic and a company called The Great Courses. Mm -hmm. 
And so had to, it's sort of one of these careful what you wish for. <laughs> what a fantastic opportunity both to share my passion for the parks and what, what I know about many of the parks and also to learn even more about yeah. them. And, uh, and so 36 lectures, half an hour each, uh, each one's about the length of a good long, you know, with the script, cause they're all scripted, uh, essay for the New Yorker or something like that. So, uh, and the, the schedule uh, called for me to, uh, to complete two scripts a week. So uh, on top of my day job. So I was working like mad, but just really got to immerse myself in the uh, in right. the parks and learn about them. And um, and I tell you, I mean, one of the things I learned there, I've been to many, many parks uh, of the, you know, of the, you know, the big 59 and, and many of the other units of the park service. But there's still plenty more that I haven't been to yet. I want to get to all of them. Yeah. And uh, and I learned about so many, you know, I, did you know that that on the western slope of the Colorado Rockies, you have great sand dunes national park you've got a desert that you know it looks like the sahara full of enormous dunes and that if you take your family there you can rent uh sandboards that are like snowboards and you can surf down the uh, down the dunes with the blessing of the park service it's just you know i did not know but now it's on the list there you go. <laughs> who knew and, and and the parks are loaded with experience yeah. like that. um of course one of the things i did as a hobby, I used to. I had an uncle when I was growing up who liked to go spelunking. He liked to go caving. Took me a few times out to Western Virginia and West Virginia and so on to go in caves. Um, but then uh, I, I went with a family friend. Uh, the, 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 uh, took us over to uh, Kentucky. We went to Mammoth Cave. Mammoth Cave, yeah. And and I just w- I couldn't believe the place. And and it's got everything. You know, here it is. You know, you look at the landscape, these rolling hills above ground, and you would think, well, you know, it's a it's it's a lovely place, but it's, you know, you have no idea what's hidden underground. What's hidden underground at Mammoth Cave is the longest network of caves, connected cave passages in the entire world by at least a factor of two. It's more than twice as long as the second longest cave anywhere, more than 400 miles mapped. And still going. Every month, a group called the, called the Cave Research Foundation, which the Park Service is authorized to explore the cave, uh, hosts work weekends where people come from all over, everywhere you can drive from. And that's I made some of these trips over from D.C. It was like, you know, 10, 12 hours drive, I think, to get there yeah. one way. Uh, and, and, and they'll send expeditions out, maps in hand, compasses, all the rest, and uh, survey teams. And you'll go to the limits of exploration. And the etiquette is this. If you're going to look at Virgin Cave, cave that no one has ever set foot in before, ever seen before, you can. You just you have to you can only go for, as far as you can map. Yeah. You can't go any further. So you leave some for the next team that comes. And they have lists of going leads of passages that just end and no one knows where they go. And uh, and it's maybe you might go 10 hard hours, 12 hard hours from the nearest entrance to get to the the end of the map. And then you you break you start out your going farther and you start going further. And um, I mean, it's it's absolutely incredible. And and so now I take my kids back. I mean, it's it's also if you go in the historic entrance of Mammoth Cave, um, this passageway, you know, it, it gets so large, you could probably drive a couple of semi trucks yeah. side by side right down the middle of it with ample space to spare. But there are places in that cave and lots of them, let me tell you, where the cave gets so low or so narrow, but so low, the ceiling comes down so far that you have to decide whether you could turn your head to the left mm-hmm. or to the right before you start, because once you get into it, there isn't space enough to turn it <laughs> the other way. So there's some tight squeezes in this huge cave. Um, I met a caver out there once who actually had participated in the, uh, there was an expedition that connected two big cave systems together and made this the longest cave system in the world back in the seventies before my time uh, uh-huh. caving. But, uh, but 
you know, he said, well, if you ever get claustrophobic and even even seasoned cavers who tell you they don't get claustrophobic, even they get claustrophobic sometimes. Well, if I ever get claustrophobic, I just tell myself, you know, wherever you are in a cave, there's no door behind you. You're outside. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I went to Mammoth Cave years ago and uh, was blown away. And I just did the regular tour. I didn't do any sort of serious spelunking, but I would love to go back. I mean, that's the thing with all of these places. It doesn't matter how much time you spend there. It doesn't matter what you do. There's always more to explore and there's always a reason to go back. Yeah. And there and so many of the parks are, you know, they're really different in every season. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can visit them in the summer with lots of people there uh, enjoying what's happening. When I went to uh, Yellowstone uh, this winter, it was the first time I'd been in the middle of winter, went over the, the winter holidays and there was deep snow on the ground. Of course, everything's blanketed in white, you know, on, on sunny days, it's just crystalline. And the, the steam, you know, from the, the geysers and the hot springs is so incredibly vis- vivid. Uh, in that cold. And uh, we, we went out. It wasn't Christmas night. It was the night after Christmas. Uh, we were at Old Faithful and we went out at close to midnight and uh, they walked out to watch Old Faithful erupt, take some photographs. And we had it pretty much to ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. there might have been six or eight people out at that point, who were, you know, winter visitors. And the temperature was close to 20 below. <sighs> Um, but it was gorgeous. There was a full moon oh, and, and it was it was it was just breathtaking. And that's something I'd never experienced as, as many times as I've gone back to that park. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of one of the features of the park is that is that these places there, I mean, they were made national parks because they are so extraordinary. When you're in them, you kind of recognize that you're in this place. And, and the designation as a national park makes it feel I always feel when I cross the boundary, mm-hmm. I see the sign that tells me I'm coming in as if I'm stepping into a sort of sacred space, very special, very special place. And I think I can remember even those six months in Hawaii, I feel like I can remember every single day some adventure I had every single day in a national park. Mm-hmm. And much as I love my job here at the geographic and the things that I do and my weekends and all the rest, I feel like a lot of them, if you ask me what I did 25, 30 years yeah. ago on a certain day, I couldn't remember, but I can tell you every day I've spent in a park. Yeah. And it's just, that's kind of the ex- part of the extraordinary power of parks. Yeah, no, it, it, it's true. And it's, you know, I went to uh, Hawaii, I want to say it was 10 years ago now. And I don't really remember much of anything that I did, but I do remember going up to watch the sunrise from Haleakala and then riding a bike down to the beach. You yeah. know, we just screamed down the, the, the side of the volcano and just went all the way down to the beach. And I mean, that, those are the kind of experiences that you're going to take with you and you're going to remember. You know, we were just last month at the Everglades and my kids had never been in a canoe before. So I said, you know what? We're renting a canoe. And we took them out. And we were canoeing through the sawgrass. We were, right, you know, four feet from alligators. And that's an experience that they're going to remember forever, you know? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's these experiences that you have inside the parks that make them so invaluable. Um, and and I love, you know, I love that experience. I can, you know, so vividly remember the, my first time visiting a national park. You know, that's so incredible. But then what you want to do is share it with people. Yeah. And and that's what I mean, you know, I'm so I'm so fortunate, I think, to uh, to be able to take people to the parks uh, as sort of part of my job. And, yeah. and so I'm um, always bringing new visitors to these places that I love and they get so excited. They're so thrilled. And, and I remember what it felt like to look at these places the first time. Um, I also uh, taking my family, of course, nothing better than taking your family to the parks. Um, I uh, this I guess it was two years ago, two summers ago, 
uh, planned a trip for my now wife. She was then my fiance and um, our two sons. And we went out, flew into Las Vegas, which for us from Washington, D.C., where we live, mm-hmm. flew into Las Vegas because it was easy to get to and relatively inexpensive with kids, rented a car and then charged out, did Grand Canyon, Bryce, Zion. I mentioned Cedar Breaks. We mm-hmm. did that. Then a night in Las Vegas to sort of cleanse the palate <laughs> in reverse. Yeah. And then and then on up Death Valley yeah. uh, over the Tioga Pass into Yosemite Valley. And then finally Sequoia Kings Canyon. And we flew home from San Francisco. And and I had been to all these places before, but my family hadn't been to them. And we're on the plane on the way out. My wife had let me set up the trip plan the lodges and the parks that we were going to stay in and so on. And uh, she she turned to me and she said, you know, I'm really excited about our trip, but yeah. but I you know, we're spending our first week in these desert places, you know, in Grand Canyon and Bryce and Zion. And I worry, you know, it it's just going to be brown and hot. I don't know. Is it really good? <laughs> I, I thought, oh, my gosh. You know, I said, I said, I, I, I think you'll really enjoy them. I think you'll be surprised at how much character they have and how different they are and how colorful they are. But, um, well, you tell me, but I, I hope you're going to enjoy them. And she said, OK, I'm excited about the big trees, but I just don't know. <laughs> and so we we go and we get our car and we drive. We get to the Grand Canyon late at night. It's dark and we, we go to sleep. We wake up in the morning, come out just about dawn, right before dawn, in fact, and walk to the rim of the canyon. My wife looks out at the Grand Canyon and she just broke down and started to cry. Oh, my gosh. She was just overwhelmed with how beautiful. And then she started saying, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I said, yes, it is. Yeah. And uh, and she, um, you know, and she loved all the parks. She loved every place that we went. Even the driving is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Read about the long rides. I said everywhere we go could be a national park as we're making this trip. And and you'll find that that the the traveling from here to there is half the adventure. Absolutely. But, but, um, you know, as she said at the end of it, I loved it all. But but the Grand Canyon, you know, that for her was her great moment was that she she said she could never forget, never shake that feeling of wonder that she had when she just gazed on the canyon. She just couldn't believe it. I still have a hard time believing it. I mean, we at the Geographic pride ourselves on. You know, I say we, my colleagues, the great photographers here, pride themselves on capturing these incredibly, you know, memorable images, powerful images of places and really trying to convey that experience of being there. And as great a job as they do, I would say there is no substitute for actually seeing it firsthand, seeing these places firsthand. It's wonderful to watch great films. It's wonderful to uh, look at great photos and read stories about the parks. But there is no substitute for being there. So if you can, you should go. Yeah. Well, one of the the, the frustrations that I feel, and I I also live in the D.C. area, um, is that a majority of the most impressive national parks just seem so far away. They're all out west. Mm -hmm. Um, Not all of them, obviously, but most of the most famous ones are. Um, in the D.C. area, and if you live in a big city like D.C. or Philadelphia or New York, there's going to be lots of other smaller parts of the National Park Service. And you know, we're lucky here in D.C. we have all the monuments and historic sites, which are fantastic. But I, I know a lot of people who live up and down the East Coast, they feel that these big, amazing parks are just too out of reach. Like, what do you suggest that they do? Just, tr- you know, what do you suggest? Well, all right. Lots, <laughs> lots of things. I have lots of suggestions. But yeah. Is you'd be surprised at how much we have here. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think that all the great, you know, mountain vistas are out west, 
You know, don't just go to Shenandoah, which is which is marvelous or down to the Smokies, yeah. you know, head up to uh, New England, go see Acadia or go see. It's not a national park, but the White Mountains in New Hampshire mm-hmm. could easily be the presidential range. Oh, my gosh. Mount Washington mm-hmm. and the mountains surrounding it. I mean, they're incredible, um, spectacular and, and far enough north that you get those sort of like the, you know, um, bald gray, you know, uh, uh, mountain slopes above the timberline above the tree line that you can find on the very high peaks out west. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a park like Shenandoah, you know, the, the older mountains of the, of the east, um, those rolling hills disguise experiences like the hike up Old Rag. You, you hike the Old Rag Trail, which is a very popular trail in uh, Shenandoah National Park. You're going to gain more than 2,000 feet in elevation. I mean, it's the sort of hike that you could take in Zion yeah. <laughs> or at the Grand Canyon um, where you're really going to get some elevation. At the top of it, you're up on these rocky knobs looking out on the world spread out below you, getting incredible vistas. And, of course, you can take hikes like that in the Smokies too. So there are some absolutely wonderful experiences uh, here in the east. you know. And then places like, again, Mammoth Cave, if you go a little further afield, if you head down um, to uh, to Florida, well, Congaree's in South Carolina, and then in Florida you've got both the Everglades, which you just visited, wonderful park, yeah. and um, Biscayne, which you know an extraordinary conservation story. It's just below, just south of uh, Miami, the yep. city of Miami, and uh, a few conservationists prevailed over a lot of folks who wanted to develop it into yet one more coastal resort town, and uh, and you know it's it's sort of folks said you know we that, that's a great idea but we've got plenty of those in Florida now and why don't we set this aside because what we don't have plenty of is nature and, uh, and and wild places and so here's this beautiful beautiful Elliott Key and Biscayne Bay protected now as uh, as national park a stone's throw away from Miami Beach yeah um, and then the Keys and and the Dry Tortugas at the very end of the Florida Keys that's that's beyond Key West you can't drive there right. But uh, you get a seaplane, a little seaplane, and, and make your way out or ride on a ride on a boat. And um, the, the the great irony of Dry Tortugas National Park is that more than 99 percent of the park is submerged. There's nothing dry about it. <laughs> um, but, but what a place! And again, a place that relatively you know very few people uh, have ever set eyes on. Yeah, yeah. We we yeah, we went all the way down to Key West. We did not. It, it pains me because we drove there. We drove from D.C. to Key West, mm-hmm. and it pains me that we did not get to the Dry Tortugas, but we just did not have the time. So it's yet again reason to go back. Well, right. And, well, <laughs> one more thing I'll say. You mentioned driving, and you know, and it's tough because um, you know, when, when, if we're working, you know, for a living, whether we're whether we're working at home or we're working, uh, you know, working in an office, we probably have only limited leave. Right. Time away is yeah. really precious and constrained. But if you can do it, you know, if you can get a couple weeks off, especially if you can get three weeks off, um, just mindful that the drive, you know, that the getting there is half the fun. Right. Even from the East Coast, you can drive across the country. I've done it several times. Yeah. And and it's the again, these are some of the great experiences of my life. And um, what a great thing to share with your kids. So you can plan a trip out west where you basically make your way from park to park to park. And you can do a, a northern route out and a southern route back or the other yeah. way around and yeah. see completely different places as you go, have all kinds of adventures. And you, what you save on airfare will more than pay for your gas and hotel yeah. rooms, um, especially if you drive a fuel economical car. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so it's, um, you know, if you can make that time, if you can save up a little leave and make that time, you'll find it's incredibly rewarding. You're, you're inspiring me. I, I've driven across country. I've not done it with my kids. Um, we were planning a trip to Iceland this summer, but now I'm no, no. Maybe we'll just ta- <laughs> I'll just take them across country. I don't really it's, know. It's centennial at the Park Service. Center. I know. And well, and that's something else I'll share because because that trip 
that that incredible trip, which you know, my, my entire family agrees, best trip we've ever taken, but the greatest trip of our lives, that two-week trip to the parks out west, some of the parks. Um, I started planning in March or April yeah. for a trip that we took in July and August. Yeah. And that's pretty late if you're talking about booking the National Park Lodges or campsites, things like that. Those tend to book up pretty quickly when reservations open, usually a good year in advance. The great thing is we've got the Internet now and people cancel. Yeah. So over a period of a few weeks, I just checking back, kept checking back uh, to see if there were cancellations at the places we wanted to stay that I really wanted to take my family. And I got every single lodge uh, I wanted to get us in. Because people canceled for two days here, three days there. We were able to um, put it together, and it really didn't take that much work. Same thing happened this uh, this summer. I have been invited to come to a uh, uh, an event in Banff in the Canadian Rockies, which itself hosts a beautiful national park, uh, Canadian park. And I thought, well, shoot, I've wanted to get my, my family up to Glacier National Park and the Canadian Rockies parks for a while. That's been on our list. And um, – so I thought, well, let's just do that. And so over the 4th of July and the, the last week of June and the, the week, you know, um, through the, that whole first week of July, we're going to travel up there. And we only made our plans about five or six weeks ago nice. to take this trip. And of course, it's the centennial year of the parks. Lodges like the Many Glacier Lodge and Glacier National Park are completely sold out, mm -hmm. completely booked up. But over several days, I kept checking. And lo and behold, there were cancellations. So we'll nice. stay at the Lake McDonald Lodge, the Many Glacier Lodge, the Prince of Wales Hotel in uh, Waterton Lakes National Park. If you Google it, if you yeah. haven't seen it, yeah. it's uh, the, the, the image of that hotel, the photo of that hotel is one you've probably seen. We'll stay at the Banff Springs Hotel in Banff. That's not in the national park, but it's surrounded by one. It's quite glorious. And uh, the Chateau Lake Louise uh, on Lake, Lake Louise in the Canadian Rockies. All of that we were able to do by just checking back for cancellation. So don't, don't write off a trip to the park because you didn't plan ahead. No, absolutely. Folks. Absolutely. Um, I know we're, we're running up on time here, but with no limitations in place, where would you choose to be on a perfect day? <sighs> on a perfect day. On a perfect day. Your perfect day. On my perfect day, I would wake up at the Old Faithful Inn in Yellowstone National Park and uh, I would, gosh, do just about anything at all. <laughs> Maybe I would walk. I would walk around the Upper Geyser Basin and uh, you know take a long walk amid you know more than half the world's geysers are right there in inside Yellowstone. Lot are in Iceland. Geyser, geyser, for which all the world's geysers are named, is in Iceland. Yeah. But more than half the world's geysers are in Yellowstone, and they were they're mostly right there in that upper Upper Geyser Basin. So I could stay there, or if I had a car and friends along. We might charge out, go to the Grand Canyon of the uh, the Yellowstone River, that beautiful, glorious pink and yellow, you know, multicolored uh, canyon, and just watch the uh, watch the waterfall for a while. Take a good long hike. Um, really, just about anything at all in Yellowstone. But I know I would wake up at the Old Faithful Inn and I would go to uh, go to bed there at the end of the day. Fantastic, Ford. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been amazing. My you've, pleasure. You've, you've inspired me. I hope you've inspired everybody who's been listening because your passion for the subject is contagious. Well, I'm delighted to share it and uh, get to the parks. This is the year to do it. Yeah. Uh, discover or rediscover uh, national parks that uh, you will treasure throughout your lifetime. And um, yeah, and, and, and do all you can to support them. They're a great, great, great thing that our country has that no one else has. Awesome. Thank you so much. My uh, I get. I want a quick question before you before we hang up here. You are you're still in the D.C. area, yes? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, Northern Virginia. Uh, are you doing anything for BioBlitz in May? For the, 
For the BioBlitz in May, well, here's the thing. National Geographic, I mean, you, you may know this, uh-huh. we, and I'm so glad you brought this up, in fact. May 20th and 21st, Friday and Saturday, we are hosting a, um, an event called a BioBlitz, uh, which is a 24-hour species inventory. Uh, in which we try to you know, go out with naturalists, with biologists, with park rangers, try to identify as many of every kind of species as possible, birds and fish and insects and mammals and, and also plants. You know, and so we'll, get, we'll have plant ecologists and uh, biologists there uh, to help go right through the night. Uh, and it's really an opportunity for families, people who just love, uh, love nature, People who don't know anything about nature but want to learn a little more about where they live and, you know, the, the, the wonders all around them to come out. So there'll be one right here on the National Mall, and there'll be more than 200 in national parks um, and monuments and, and other parts of the Park Service and other, other destinations all across the country. So uh, if you're not here in the D.C. area, find a local bio blitz and try to participate in that. We've, we've hosted one a year in a national park uh, near a big city every year for the last 10 years in anticipation of this centennial of the National Park mm-hmm. Service. But this is the big one where so many so many different parks across the country will be participating. Yeah, I so, thought it was just at the National Mall. So then I went online to look, get some more information, and I was surprised to see that it was – I mean, just in this area, there's dozens of them going on. Yeah, if you go to you know, nationalgeographic.com slash bioblitz, you'll see that there are many, many, many uh, different events taking place. And you can uh, search on a map or search by your – your region, you know, your, your, where you live and, uh, and find out what's close to you. So, uh, so come out for that. And I'll tell you, my son, Rose Crew, and uh, he's competing in a great big regatta mm-hmm. that very same day, the 20th and the 21st, those <laughs> two days up in uh, Philadelphia. So I'm looking for a bio blitz in the uh, Philly area that I can participate in when he's not rowing. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I will be somewhere down here. I haven't even decided yet because we're taking the kids, so we got to find some place that's good for them. So. Awesome. Awesome. We're looking so forward to mall, it. The mall should be great. Rock Creek should be great. Uh, this whole this whole region. Or Shenandoah nearby if you yeah. want to there. Well, maybe we'll do that. That'd be, that's a good idea. Again, thank you so much. Um, this has just been phenomenal, um, and I really appreciate it. Delightful talking to you and, and talking to your listeners, your podcast listeners. And uh, uh, feel free, if, if I can ever help again, please give me a shout. I'd love to uh, love to talk to you once more. Will do. Thanks so much. Thank you and take care. All right. Well, that's it for this week on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Fun, fun interviews. And that party, how, how, how cool was it to be there? It, it was pretty cool. Yeah. And I, and I have to say... This is another sort of side story. I know we're probably running long at this point. Right. Um, but I was I was there and I was by myself because um, we didn't have anybody to watch the kids. So my wife had to stay home. So it was just me. Um, and, you know, usually drinking by myself at a party where I know mm-hmm. nobody is sort of my own personal nightmare. Right. Um, but I was <laughs> like, how often do I get to drink on the floor of the Air and Space Museum with astronauts right so like i forced myself to have a good time and i met a couple of the other press people at the red carpet so i i was I ended up talking to them but i got a text from one of the other geek dad writers who told me that william shatner was there <laughs> and i started to freak out I was like, what? shatner's here shatner's here and like <laughs> i couldn't i walk i i was probably the most obvious <laughs> semi-drunk stalker in that place because i was walking around like staring like looking in all the dark corners and couldn't find him <laughs> And then I was like, you know who would know if he were here? Security guards. Right. Because they tend to know everything. Yeah. So, like, I back up to this one security guard. And he's like, how's it going? I said, Son, little birdie told me that uh, Shatner was here tonight. Really? Like, he suddenly got just as excited <laughs> as I did. 
And he's, I was like, you haven't seen him, have you? And he's like, no. Nah. He's like, but he's here a lot. So it really wouldn't surprise me if, uh, if he were here. And so for like a good 30, 40 minutes, I was like panicked. Like, what do I do if I find him? Can right. I ask him for a picture? Can I ask him for what, what do I do? Yeah. And then in about 45 minutes after I, you know, started the panic, I realized that it was the same weekend as a, wasn't, it's not really a convention, but it was a special event with speakers and panels, mm-hmm. um, mostly based around science fiction and popular culture and science, uh, sponsored by Smithsonian Magazine. Uh, okay. It was also in D.C., and he was there as a guest for that. Gotcha. And the person who told me just heard Smithsonian and thought we were at, there was only one event. Right, so of course. All that panicking and freaking out and fanboying away was for nothing because Shatner really wasn't there. No, but you know what? I had real life astronauts. Who needs Captain Kirk? Well, I was just about to say, I love that you were there with real astronauts <laughs> and it became about finding William Shatner. <laughs> if that's not I a testament heard. to the pure geek dad, I don't know I what is. <laughs> that's perfect. We're Shatner. You've been in space. I don't care. We're yeah, Shatner. I don't care. I don't want the real people who have walked to space. Give I me the guy, guy that was like in a spaceship on a Hollywood set. Yeah. Give me the guy who was on a Hollywood set in the Air Press, not the real one. Oh, come on. You're telling me you wouldn't have gotten no, excited I, if you found 100%. out you were at the same party as William Shatner? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I'd be like, astronauts who? What? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the astronauts were cool, but I had already talked to them. There was only so much I could be. I mean, I didn't want to like. No, right. Stand around and be a creepy guy, you know? <laughs> they had their families and stuff with them, and they were talking to everybody, and I right. couldn't just, you know, occupy them. No, of course. You needed to find Shatner. I get exactly. it. I get exactly. I get it. I get it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you for coming back week after week. Thanks for hitting that subscribe button. We really appreciate it. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the GBB podcast. We are also at the GBB podcast on Twitter. And we love to uh, interact and hear your stories and, you know, and hear what you have to say about the show. It's really neat to read your tweets. That, that rhymed. I didn't mean it to, but that's cool. <laughs> really neat to read your tweets. It's going to be our new thing. Um, I am at 140 Justin C. I am at the Roarbot. And we will see you next week. Take care. <laughs> this podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.